Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's September 2002, six months before the invasion of Iraq, and George Bush is coming to the United Nations. On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome to the United Nations His Excellency, Mr. George W. Bush. He's about to give a speech, keenly anticipated in both Washington and in London. And of course, whenever there's a major speech coming up by an American president, the British Embassy somewhere, mostly in Washington, will try and find out what's in it before it happens. This is Sir Jeremy Greenstock. I was a career diplomat, ending up at the UN as UK permanent representative in New York. And so, if the president's coming to make a speech to the UN, Jeremy's job is to find out what he's going to say in advance. Uh, and we had good liaison. There was plenty of good communication. But this time, there's a problem. Americans make their final decisions on big issues amongst Americans and behind closed doors. And even the Brits find it quite difficult to invade that. Which means that Jeremy doesn't know what Bush is going to say. He knows what he hopes he'll say, that he'll call for a new United Nations resolution that would halt the march towards war in Iraq. The line he was looking for would go something like this. And therefore, my administration requests that the UN tries to uh, adopt a resolution compelling Saddam Hussein to bring the inspectors back and obey previous resolutions. It was a resolution needed by Tony Blair so that he could maintain his stance of being shoulder to shoulder with George Bush. And we didn't quite see that that language was coming into the final draft of the speech. And so Bush walks up to the lectern. Mr. Secretary General, Mr. President, distinguished delegates, and ladies and gentlemen, We meet one year and one day after a terrorist attack brought grief to my country. And Jeremy's wondering, along with the rest of the world, what the hell's going to happen next? I'm David Dimbleby, and from something else, this is The Fault Line, Bush, Blair and Iraq. Let's wind back to the months before Bush gave that speech at the UN. In April 2002, Tony Blair had thrown his support behind the president at that private meeting at the Crawford Ranch. The two of them were going off together to the Crawford Ranch with no advisers, and off they went into the sunset. No one's clear exactly what was agreed, but it seemed that regime change in Iraq was now a joint ambition. If necessary, the action should be military. And again, if necessary and justified, it should involve regime change. As we heard in the last episode, the main argument for this war being necessary 
was weapons of mass destruction, the deadly weapons that Saddam was assumed to have. The problem was that just saying there were weapons in Iraq wasn't going to be enough. Blair's advisers were telling him, we need to get approval from the United Nations. We need international support for military action. But in the months following Crawford, there was no sign from the American administration that this was going to happen. All the signs in Washington pointed towards war sooner rather than later. Blair's advisers were worried. Blair's aim through all this was to get close to the American president and to stay close, but it was starting to cause him big problems at home. People in the UK were saying that Blair was in Bush's pocket. And I'm very sorry the Prime Minister appears to go along with it all the way. We elected him Prime Minister, not Vice President of the United States. And I think... These mutterings were coming from his own Labour Party. And he needed to keep his party and his cabinet on side if he was to back Bush and if he was to have a future as Prime Minister. I, I wasn't clear whether he was really aware about where the Parliamentary Labour Party was or many ministers in his own cabinet were and how he could be left proverbially up the creek without a paddle on this. This is Foreign Secretary Jack Straw. A consequence of my saying a number of things like that and others saying to him was that by uh, late July, he was clear that we had to go down the UN route and that he had a job to do to persuade Bush that that was necessary. But it wasn't just Bush he had to persuade. The person who scared Blair shitless, like a lot of other people in the British cabinet, was um, Dick Cheney. This is Britain's ambassador in Washington, Christopher Mayer. It could be a scary guy. Vice President Dick Cheney wasn't someone who was keen to take the question of the Iraq war down the diplomatic route. He wanted war. Mayer remembers he was once talking to Cheney with Jack Straw. And Jack said something about the dangers of war. And Cheney, who's not a man to show emotion, suddenly exploded before our eyes. Exploded. And he said, the United States in the last 10 years has had to suffer humiliation after humiliation, blowing up of the Al-Khabar barracks, the ship attacked in Aden Harbor, embassies blown up in East Africa. And he went through a whole litany of these things. And he said, and finally, we have 9-11. And we have not done a damn thing to avenge these outrages inflicted on the American people. And um, I thought to myself, that's where he's coming from. It made me realize that Cheney would be absolutely implacable and unforgiving in demanding military action against Saddam Hussein after 9-11. And that's what he was. Cheney was worried that seeking approval from the United Nations might delay things or worse. Let's just step back a minute here and explain why. In the 90s, the UN had passed a number of resolutions that said Saddam had to get rid of his weapons program, and if he didn't, such steps as were necessary could be taken to make him, i.e. force could be used. Now Cheney and the neocons believed there was still a weapons program in Iraq, and therefore Saddam Hussein was still in breach of those already existing UN resolutions. No need to get a new resolution. The other problem for Cheney was that any new resolution would certainly mean 
the return of the weapons inspectors. And that contained a potentially disastrous pitfall for the Bush administration. Because it would mean they'd have to prove there actually were weapons in Iraq, rather than just brief the media that they knew it to be true. So Cheney was adamant, no to the UN. Blair was really worried about this because if Bush took Cheney's advice and Blair still supported Bush, he'd be in big trouble at home. He could face a vote of no confidence. He could have to resign. Britain would, in effect, be out of the game. So in July, Blair decided to send a note to Bush setting out his concerns. He explained that if they were to build a broad coalition for war, they needed to go to the UN and get a resolution that ordered the weapons inspectors back into Iraq. But while the note was clear, setting out Blair's aims, it opened with an unusual phrase. When he said to, wrote to uh, George W and said, what, whatever you decide to do, I'm with you. What did, what did you make of that? What, uh, when you, when you... I went like this. I watched as Jack Straw held his hands to his head as if in shock on the Zoom video when he said this because Blair's opening line in the note was... Whatever you decide to do, I am with you. I'd not seen it in draft. I mean, it, it was a personal minute from Tony, one page personal minute from Tony to uh, the president. Could be an element of, it was rather innocent. I'm not sure he ever thought it was going to be made public. Blair liked to write these personal memos to Bush. It was his style. I thought, what did he say that for? And uh, there are others around him who had said to him, as he was writing it, this is, uh, don't put that in. And on that one, I do remember there was a discussion. Alistair Campbell was Blair's press secretary. I think we we're on a plane, but I have a memory of saying, do you really want to say, you know, we are with you, whatever, we are with you, come what may. And Tony's view was that, you know, in a sense, it was, if you like, the figure of speech. It was the, this is me saying, we're with you, OK? That's his way in then to being able, hopefully, to have it, some influence over the strategy. Just tell me what you meant by, George, I'll be with you, whatever, because the normal understanding would that be, I don't actually, you know, you can do anything you want, <laughs> Britain's with you. Is that what you meant? No, of course not. Look, if, if you read the entirety of the, it wasn't a sentence. <laughs> I mean, I didn't send him something saying, we're going to be with you, whatever you do, period. Tony Blair. What I was saying to him was, that this was a private communication. I'm going to be with you in dealing with this. However, the whole of the rest of the script was explaining how difficult this was going to be because the consequences of military action were going to be difficult. So, now look, it's it's, but it, it, all the way through, the 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 challenge that you have is if I'd said, well, look, here are the following fifteen conditions before I'm prepared to be with you in this. You've got a different type of relationship with the decision maker. But put yourself in George Bush's position. Uh, you say, I'll be with you, whatever. Uh, doesn't that signal to him that actually, while it's good to have you on his side, it doesn't really in the end matter whether you're on his side? To him? You're signed up, you're signed up, you don't need to take any notice of the conditions. No, no, because the whole purpose of the conversations we were having at the time was as I say, to say to his system, I'm sorry, but we have to take this to the United Nations. So I, I don't think he was under any illusions or, or misunderstandings about it. He, he knew perfectly well what I was saying to him, which is I'm going to 
And I had been all the way through since 9-11. I've been shoulder to shoulder. And the whole purpose of what I was saying was don't take my insistence that we go the UN route and my anxiety about the nature of the action. Don't take that as meaning I'm not with you in this. I am with you in it. But here's what you, you've got to understand. If we're going to keep this coalition together, we've got to try and resolve it first through a peaceful process. Uh, so if if the, the, the Cheney and the others who, Rumsfeld, who didn't want to go the, the UN route, the people who say thought this is crazy, we don't like the UN anyway, if Bush had come down against going to the UN, would you nevertheless have gone into Iraq with him, shoulder to shoulder? Um, hello, my deep instinct was that Britain had to be with America in fighting this thing. Uh, it would have been extremely difficult. And so Blair was adamant he needed Bush to go to the UN and get a new resolution. And he did have one important ally against Cheney inside the Bush administration, although this ally often found himself outnumbered. It's pretty hard to beat the president, the vice president, and the national security advisor all lined up against you on any one issue. Lawrence Wilkerson, chief of staff to the secretary of state, Colin Powell. I mean, you can argue until you're blue in the face, but when the president says, okay, done, argument's over. Or, as happened a number of times, more than most people think, the president sides with Powell only to then be gotten to by the vice president later in the evening in the Oval alone and change his mind, and Powell finds out about it when the TV tells him. This is what seemed to happen to Colin Powell again and again. He was always trying to calm Bush's impatience on Iraq, but he was constantly blindsided by Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, and by the Department of Defense. And that was a problem throughout. We lost uh, several fairly heady battles because we didn't know what was going on until the last minute. And Rumsfeld almost always knew what was going on because he was plugged into the vice president and the vice president was the generator of action. Meanwhile, Tony Blair's foreign secretary, Jack Straw, was working with Powell to help him persuade Bush they really did need to go to the UN. And I went on a completely secret trip to see Powell in the third week of August 2002 to go through what we were planning. Straw flew by Concord to Powell's holiday home at East Hampton on Long Island, and they spoke there for three hours on the veranda. Straw wanted to reinforce the message that Powell must win Bush round to the UN route. I was sceptical about whether there was any need for us to take military action, but my view was that it was essential that we gave Saddam an opportunity to get off the hook. Allowing the inspectors back in, Straw was saying, could help avoid war could allow Saddam to prove he didn't have the weapons. And that was why the UN route was so, so important. Powell agreed, and after Straw's visit, he was able to go to Bush and say, look, we need to go to the UN, because if we don't, Blair's going to stop supporting us, and we do need international support on this. Bush initially agrees. Uh, and so he thought he had convinced the president of that, and so did I. So did everybody at state. We thought he had convinced the president. I think he thought he had too. But Cheney got to the president. On the 24th of August, Cheney went to the Veterans of Foreign Wars Convention in Nashville, Tennessee, run by an organization of war veterans. 
Vice President Dick Cheney has had a distinguished career as a businessman and a public servant, serving four presidents. He's himself never fought in a war before. In fact, he got five draft deferments from Vietnam. But he's introduced by a veteran, dressed in full uniform, medals and all, and his military beret on. Ladies and gentlemen, the Vice President of the United States, Richard B. Cheney. Thank you. And Cheney gets up and against all the advice he's had from American intelligence, paints a picture of an Iraq hand-in-hand -hand with Al-Qaeda. The terrorists who struck America are ruthless, they are resourceful, and they hide in many countries. They came into our country to murder thousands of innocent men, women, and children. There is no doubt they wish to strike again and that they are working to acquire the deadliest of all weapons. And he raises the specter of nuclear weapons, of a world faced with a nuclear-armed Saddam. We now know that Saddam has resumed his efforts to acquire nuclear weapons. Among other sources, we've gotten this from first-hand testimony from defectors. Many of us are convinced that Saddam Hussein will acquire nuclear weapons fairly soon. And then he turns to the inspectors. Saddam has perfected the game of cheat and retreat and is very skilled in the art of denial and deception. A return of inspectors would provide no assurance whatsoever of his compliance with UN resolutions. On the contrary, there's a great danger that it would provide false comfort that Saddam was somehow back in his box. Suddenly, it seems that the administration may be turning away from the UN route after all. So Blair knows he needs to act. No good sending another note. He must see Bush face to face. On the 7th of September, Blair came to Camp David. Another summit between the two leaders. Another summit where the stakes couldn't have been higher. And this time, Cheney is there. And Bush says to Blair, right, Blair, explain to Cheney why we should go to the UN. I mean, David Manning, who was Tony's foreign policy advisor by that time, I remember him turning to me, and he scribbled to me, you know, this is the most extraordinary that I've ever seen in my diplomatic career. Bush was effectively using Tony to try to persuade Cheney that Bush was right to go down the United Nations route, or to try to. Blair was doing what he'd always hoped he'd be able to do, exerting his influence on Bush and on the American administration. When we were walking up to the helicopter, Bush said to Tony, I can't remember the exact words, but he basically said that was, that was really helpful. And he's, he made no bones about it. He said, Cheney's in a different position to me. And I've got to move him. Yeah. Will you, uh, Mr. President, seek a UN resolution prior to any action against Iraq? Well, first I'm going to give a speech next Thursday, and I'd like you to tune in. On behalf of the General Assembly, September the 12th, 2002, a day after the first anniversary of 9-11. The previous day was marked by ceremonies all over New York and outpourings of grief. Emotions are running high. We meet one year and one day after a terrorist attack brought grief to my country and brought grief 
to many citizens of our world. UN Ambassador Jeremy Greenstock is in the chamber of the UN General Assembly. And as we heard earlier, he's no idea what Bush is going to say. And then moments before the president is set to enter the chamber, he finds out. At the end, the president did agree that he would ask specifically for a resolution to be adopted. Exactly what the British, Blair and Greenstock wanted. What he doesn't know is that there is a last minute hitch. The, the president was given by his staff as he walked to the lectern of the UN General Assembly, the penultimate version of the speech and not the final version. And because it really was a last minute decision, the line about the resolution wasn't in the penultimate version. Iraq has answered a decade of UN demands with a decade of defiance. All the world now faces a test and the United Nations a difficult and defining moment. And the president, to give him his due, when he came to that passage, saw that what was written on his perspex screen that he was looking at as he delivered his speech was the penultimate version. And therefore he had to search for his memory, in his memory, for the, the right words. But he did say it. We will work with the UN Security Council for the necessary resolutions. Thank you very much. From under the noses of the neocons, Blair and Powell had won. There'd be a pause. The inspectors would be going back into Iraq. And uh, uh, I felt a huge sense of relief and thought, well, we can, we, we can resolve this without uh, going to military action. For a moment, just a moment, the mood had changed. There was a moment when we thought we were going to avoid war and that effectively Saddam would disarm totally, that Saddam would become a kind of different politician, if you see what I mean. There was a moment of optimism, sort of trembling in the air. ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. On September the 12th, 2002, President Bush called for a UN resolution that would send weapons inspectors back into Iraq in a last attempt to find and destroy, if they existed, Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. Prime Minister Blair had won the battle against Cheney and the neocons and had persuaded American opinion that they should at least go through the motions of pursuing a diplomatic settlement. For just a moment, it seemed like war might be avoided, but it didn't last long. Only a few weeks later, the war drums were beating again with headline news about the threat that Saddam Hussein posed. And at the heart of this twist in the story is one man. OK, yeah. I'm Alistair Campbell and I was Tony Blair's Director of Communications and Strategy. Tony Blair's right-hand man, Alistair Campbell. I don't know if this was deliberate, but I think he probably knew that along the way he would need lightning conductors. And I think he felt that I would maybe fill that role at a certain point. Blair and Campbell go way back. Campbell met Blair when he was a journalist working in Parliament. And um, we just sort of hit it off. Because Campbell and Blair shared one ambition. It's a relationship founded very much in a kind of shared belief in wanting the Labour Party to be in power rather than in opposition. Eventually, Blair becomes leader of the party and he asks Campbell to run his communications team. How would you describe Blair's kind of political nous, the thing that appealed to you about him? What was it in his political character that for you set him apart uh, from other people? My favourite headline ever written about Tony was when, when we went in opposition to Australia and the Australian magazine did a profile of him and there was a cartoon on the front and the headline was Nice Kind of Bastard. And I think it was that. It was a combination of nice guy, very nice guy, basically a decent human being, but very ruthless about what he wanted to achieve. And that's why they got on. I remember what he said. He said, tactical minds are two a penny, strategic minds are very rare, and I think you've got a strategic mind and that's what I need. Campbell was certainly strategic. When he took over the Labour press team, he handed them copies of Machiavelli's The Prince. It's a book that explains the dark arts of politics. And dark arts are what Campbell became famous for, the shadowy figure manoeuvring things this way and that to make sure his boss succeeded. And he was a ruthless operator, calling journalists up in the middle of the night and swearing and cursing at them if he didn't like a story they'd written about his boss. 
His reputation was so toxic that the satirist Amanda Yanucci, who wrote the series Veep, actually based a character on him called Malcolm Tucker. Toys, play with that. Go and stand in that fucking corner. Stand over there, right? And do not move, or I will perform a fucking living fucking autopsy on you with a fucking rusty speed and I'll have your kidneys for fucking cufflinks. Actually, in person, Campbell can be charming if he wants to be, but brutal if he doesn't. So come late summer of 2002, not long before Bush makes that speech at the UN, Blair turns to his right-hand man because he needs help with an important task. I think it was after the summer holiday, and that was when Tony decided that we should we should go ahead with publishing as much of as we could of the intelligence that he was seeing. Blair decided he had to publish a dossier of the intelligence on Saddam Hussein's weapons programme. It would help him make a public case for why regime change in Iraq was necessary. But this was unprecedented. For a government to publish a dossier of secret intelligence, it had never been done before. You and I will both remember under successive prime ministers, you couldn't even talk about intelligence. If you even asked Margaret Thatcher or you know, her predecessors about it, they would say, look, you know full well, Mr Dimbleby, that we don't talk about that. And you as a journalist and I as a journalist back then would just say, oh, yeah, OK. I know that all too well. I remember once being summoned to 10 Downing Street to be briefed by the Cabinet Secretary on the progress of peace talks in Northern Ireland. I was warned I should never reveal even that we'd spoken or I'd end up under arrest in the Tower of London. Come to think of it, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, Blair was desperate. Public disapproval of the idea of war was growing and he felt the only way to win people over was to share with them the information he was getting from his security services. One problem with intelligence is it's often dry and a bit technical and it can be ambiguous. So Blair turns for help to Campbell. You're the kind of master of communications. When you were reading this stuff, how did you go about seeing that it made the case against Saddam? So I think that for me, the judgments were, is it clear? Does it explain in a coherent, credible way why Tony Blair and the government more broadly were becoming more, not less concerned about Iraq? But there was a problem with these judgments. The intelligence on Iraq just wasn't that good. It hadn't been good since the inspectors left the country at the end of the 90s, which we heard about in episode four. In March, when Blair's intelligence services produced their assessment, they admitted their information was, and these are the words, sporadic and patchy. Although Blair takes issue with the way people understood this. It's really important to, to recognize because people have taken the words sporadic and patchy out of the intelligence briefing and said, well, in that case, it was all really pretty unclear. But actually, if you go on and read the entire briefing, they were saying it was clear that the program was being developed. There was issues about how much of it and, and what exactly, but the intelligence was always very clear all the way through that there was an active problem in relation to weapons of mass destruction and Saddam. Despite what Blair says, there's a feeling as they start to put this dossier together that there really isn't a killer fact, a clincher. 
But then, late in August, fresh information comes in from an intelligence source that claims Saddam has forward-deployed military units ready for firing within 45 minutes. In other words, Saddam could deploy chemical or biological weapons very quickly, within an hour. Frightening. The intelligence services put this into the dossier in these words. The Iraqi military may be able to deploy chemical or biological weapons within 45 minutes of an order to do so. And this is where Campbell steps in. Now Blair, with Campbell's help, is writing a foreword to this dossier. It's the bit in which Blair sets out his interpretation of the intelligence that he's publishing. And Campbell spots the discrepancy. In the foreword that they've written, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction ready within 45 minutes of an order to use them. Not may have weapons. Saddam has them. Now this obviously needs clearing up. So Campbell writes to the head of MI6 and points out that the language the intelligence services are using in the body of the dossier is weaker than the language the prime minister is using in the foreword. The next day, the language in the main body of the dossier is changed. The word may is removed. I was talking to the head of the CIA in Paris and we were talking about it. And he said, yeah, but intelligence is, is only intelligence. It's never absolute. And I'm just wondering whether you were kind of, you, you obviously needed something to make the case for why you were going on and on and on about Iraq. Um, whether you gave more substance to intelligence than with hindsight was desirable or even, even, even right. Yeah, I can see why why you might somebody might say that, but at this, but then equally, I think the other thing you have to understand is that, and I can remember Tony Blair at certain points saying this is is that so there's all yes, I think there's an acceptance that intelligence is, you know, even if you even if you have raw intelligence on you know something that person A has said to person B about something that may may be going to happen. It, even that doesn't mean it is, because there could be different motivations at play, even within a conversation between two people at the heart of a of a government. So, you you of course you have to make judgments, and that's why I think it's important to remember the judgment was not merely based on the intelligence; it was based on his own judgments as well, and the cabinet's judgment about you know not least a historical understanding of of some of these these issues. His own judgment. In other words, this was Blair reading the intelligence and giving his view on what the intelligence meant. Whether that distinction between the intelligence that was on the file and what Blair actually said it meant was made clear to the public is another matter. Just before Blair stood up to present the dossier in the House of Commons, Campbell got an email from a colleague in Downing Street. How would London's biggest newspaper, The Evening Standard, report on the dossier? What would their headline be? And Campbell replied... And I said it'll be something to do with 45 minutes. Order! Order! And so Blair gets up to start speaking. Prime Minister! Yeah. Order! Prime Minister! Yeah. Mr Speaker, sir, with your permission, I should like to make a statement. 
He makes two main points. First, that Saddam has mobile weapons laboratories that can make biological weapons. This is from the evidence that came from the mysterious source we talked about last time, Curveball. In particular, the UN inspection regime discovered that Iraq was trying to acquire mobile biological weapons facilities, which of course are easier to conceal. Present intelligence confirms that they have now got such facilities. We'll hear much more about him in the next episode, but mention of Saddam's mobile weapons laboratories featured nine times in the dossier. All eventually result in excruciatingly painful death. The second claim that Blair made, of course, was that the weapons could be used within 45 minutes. It concludes that Iraq has chemical and biological weapons, that Saddam has continued to produce them, that he has existing and active military plans for the use of chemical and biological weapons, which could be activated within 45 minutes, including against his own Shia population, and that he is actively trying to acquire nuclear weapons capability. This isn't a description of intelligence that's patchy or sporadic. There are no caveats here. This is clear. Saddam has the weapons. Will not shrink from doing what is necessary and what is right. As Blair sits down, the news bulletins start to flash around the world, this being the first time any secret intelligence had been officially released about Saddam's weapons program. Prime Minister Blair, first of all, is a very strong leader, and I admire his willingness to tell the truth and to lead. Uh, secondly, he has, continues to make the case, like we make the case, that Saddam Hussein is a threat to peace. As people entered the tube stations that evening on their return from work, they were faced with the headline in the London Evening Standard, splashed across the front page, Britain, 45 minutes from attack. It was a nightmare vision of a country under threat. You could say it was exactly the message that Blair wanted, a real and imminent threat. I mean, headlines varied from Blair warns of nuclear threat to Britain, uh, weapons ready to be used, weapons of mass destruction ready to be used in 45 minutes, that kind of thing. But I what, did it achieve what you wanted? So I think what it did was it, it did allow him and the government more broadly to share with the public the sense of why the concern was growing. And that was, its, if you like, its objective. That, and so, yes, it did do that. Did, I, did it make... Did it do much to change the debate in Parliament? I, I don't honestly know. I can't really say that. Um, so it's very hard to answer that question in, in isolation. I think at the time, um, it was a huge event around the world. Um, I think it did... Yes, I think it did communicate what we were trying to communicate. By the middle of September 2002, in some ways, Blair had achieved what he wanted to achieve. He had persuaded Bush to go to the UN, and he had, for a short while at least, dampened down concern within his own party. A convincing performance, but also a gamble. I mean, I can, I can vividly remember the moment when... I remember the moment when John Scarlett came to my office and said, how difficult would it be if actually we don't find weapons of mass destruction? And I said, that would be 
I may have sworn, difficult. Next time on the fault line, the inspectors enter Iraq, Colin Powell and Curveball head to the UN. Well, I'd never done anything like that before. I'd never put words into the principal cabinet officer for the president of the United States and the American people that were in essence in their import on their most important and vital issues, faults. And led to war. The Fault Line is a Something Else production. It's presented by me, David Dimbleby. Joe Sykes is the producer, with additional production from Jade Scott. Mixing and sound design comes from Evan Arnett at Spoke Media. The editor and executive producer is Peggy Sutton. And thank you to Dasha Lisitsina, Ali Adlington, Mira Sharma, Russell Finch, Carly Maley, Aaron Baker, Chris Blackley, Emma Lansdowne, Mark Rivers, and Steve Ackerman. And also thanks to the George W. Bush Presidential Library for the use of their archive.